return with the report of good news and encouragement as we continue the fight for freedom and liberty against the regression of tyranny, the darkness of despotism, against the persecution of birth, church, and state. Welcome back to the Looking Glass Forum. So welcome back, and as we're here today, we're working through these episodes, and I wanted to point a few things out. We need to build the framework of our view of history so that we can use these different authors and these different perspectives into history to come to a more complete understanding of what was happening at the time that the different actors acted, the different people in history took it upon themselves to make the changes, to fight the battles, and to enter into history to alter its course. What was their motivations and what what were they feeling? What were the reports that were motivating their actions? So as we work through these episodes, we're getting into increasingly depth of rather controversial and indecipherable alternate views of world history. We know that the higher critics of academia tightly control the framing of the historical discussion and the intellectual fascists, the historical revisionists of textbooks control the whole scope of factual erudition as it relates to historical discipline at the university level and it breaks down into rudimentary propaganda disinformation so now everything is racist even facts and even history and we as autodidactic intellectuals who remain curious about reality which disappears below the noise of partisan talking points and the mass hysteria pushed by globalist organizations by an echo chamber of the media we must look continuously for the integrity of the information in the news outlets so that there is a tremendous corruption of intellectual dishonesty that we must buy pass and penetrate a morass of left-wing partisan propaganda and the intentional inflaming of mob violence with bias blindness and identity politics of division and the universities are empty so that these professors and college radicals can come out and because of the covid conspiracy can come out and form antifa and black lives matter movements and to help me make that further point i'm going to just have a little clip here it's dave at the x22 report and this is one of the recent episodes, 2219. And he has some interesting things to say that show how easily the radical operatives on college campuses and large uh, globalist organizations like the World Health Organization and the media all work together like hand in glove in order to simulate this pandemic situation in order to wag the dog or to, to steer public opinion, as it were. So here, let's take a look at this clip now. Trump his, and, and the patriots, they're hitting them from every angle. Think about what Trump just did with the World Health Organization. It's a globalist organization. He just said, we're no longer a part of this. Hillary Clinton, she's freaking out. She tweeted this. This is, ver- this is the very last thing we need. Of course, the Trump administration is doing it. What a self-inflicted disaster. She just lost control. They just lost control over the United States. From the WHO. This is why she is panicking right now. But we know what the deep state is planning. We know what foreign countries are planning. They're going to use the WHO to tell us that we have other diseases. They started out with the swine flu coming out of China with pigs. Now they're on to the bubonic plague, saying that, oh, there's an outbreak in China, but don't worry, it's well managed, just like COVID-19. What do you think they're doing right now? They're using everything they possibly have to keep the system shut down so they can remain in control. But are they in control? 
they are not. Why do you think Trump decided to get rid of the who? Why do you think you see these human trafficking rings being shut down around the world? Why do you think Maxwell was just arrested? It's not by coincidence. It's not by chance. It's happening all at the same time. Why do you think Antifa was allowed to do what they did? He could have just come in with the armed forces. Because they were being tracked, and they wanted to track everyone all the way to the top. And that's exactly what they did. Plus, they wanted the people to see firsthand what they had planned for the U.S. And that's what the people are watching right now. Now, Trump, he wants to open up the schools. And he said, in Germany, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and many other countries, schools are open with no problems. The Dems think it would be a bad for them politically if U.S. schools opened before the November election. But it is important for the children of families may cut off funding if not open. Saying that, listen, these states that don't open their schools, they might lose funding. And he wants the schools to open. Remember, the deep state, the mainstream media, they don't want anything to go back to normal. Remember, they're trying to push mail-in voting. If everyone goes back to school, if everyone sees there's no problems, if everyone is acting normal and going out shopping and we get rid of masks, their entire plan goes down the drain. Trump knows this, but he wants to show America what their true agenda is. This is why he's allowing the statistical numbers to continually add up, where the death rates are falling, case numbers might be rising, but it's showing that people do not get sick, people recover, people don't die, and soon we're going to be out of that pandemic phase. Now, colleges like Harvard and MIT and the rest, they're playing along with the deep state. Now, remember, Q has told us that election day plus one, most likely we won't hear COVID-19. And these colleges know that they'll just bring all the people back to their colleges come January. So they only have a couple of months. They might even... I don't think they'll do it in December. They'll probably do it in January. But they know that the people are they are going to reopen and people are going to come right back to their school. This is why they're not worried about it. But Trump and his administration and ICE, they said, listen, if you're not going to have college and people are doing this online, then they don't need to be in the United States. Now, remember, they don't want this. They want everyone here in the United States. So Harvard, MIT, they're filing a lawsuit against the Department of Homeland Security and Immigration and Custom Enforcement over the new student visa guidelines. They don't like that they're saying they don't need to be in this country right now. Why would they? If you're doing it online, you can just stay in your country until the college opens up again. It's very simple. So as we're taking a look at the report, it's becoming more and more evident that the universities, the leftist organizations there who have become so completely lockstep in their fascism and their socialism and their racial identity politics, that they require that 
that the pandemic situation continue so that they can have an excuse for being out of school and roaming the streets trying to perpetuate the idea that there's an overwhelming mob revolt that's going to change the course and the destiny of our of our country and that we should put away our our American revolution and our Bill of Rights and our Constitution for this new green energy, this this new green New Deal kind of madness. And we might point out that this is a race-specific revolution that's taking place. So it's designed, obviously, to be to bring us to the brink of a catastrophe. So what Dave over at the X22 report describes as the deep state, the enormous, well-moneyed banking complex of the Illuminati of the 17 and 1800s, as it were, the aristocracy of the European nobility, as they tried to overwhelm, divide, and conquer the upstart republic of free men that dared raise its head above the subjectivity and the servile status of subjects to the royals, the common man. In America, the common man was self-governing, and he would conduct a republic of self-rule that would make everyone equal, and there would be no more nobility class of lords. So I want to point out here that as we were doing our history about the Civil War, it's interesting that they had their own deep state at the time, and that the papacy had sent enormous numbers of immigrants from Europe who were being pressed by the different conflicts taking place, many from South America, but at the time, in the 1850s and 60s, there was a second Irish potato famine, as it was called. It was like a lot of conflict going on between the North and the South and Ireland, between the Protestants and the Catholics, who were fighting a lot. That's where you're going to get the history of the Irish Republic Army, the IRA, and the freedom fighters and the people that were trying to liberate themselves from the tyranny of church and state, which would come under the king or the soldiers of the Pope, as it were. And at the time, literally hundreds of thousands of Irish, impoverished Irish, literally carrying potatoes in their pockets. They're going to make the voyage across the ocean in a matter of months. And if you watch the movie Gangs of New York, it shows this as the boats pull up and outpour innumerable starving Irish men who cannot be understood because of their accent. And while the slaves are in the process of being emancipated and finding their freedom, there will be a new class of servile labor in the mix, the Irish in New York. And they were being signed up en masse to fight for the Civil War and fight for the Union. And it just so happens that after Gettysburg in September 1863, around the time that the Confederacy would receive its letter from the Pope at the time, the letter of support, infamous if not secret letter of support, became a widely held fact. And it's very late in the war. And at that time, this would cause somewhere between 90 and 100,000 Irish immigrants to defect from the Union Army to the side of the Southern Confederacy. And this is the effect that very late after September 1863, when letter of support to Jefferson Davis would cause this mass defection of Irish Catholics to the southern side of the war. And we must remember that they were bringing large numbers of immigrants in to affect the electoral process in the United States for or against one side or the other as the uh, the bishops and the archdiocese and the prelates would command their parishioners, they would dutifully vote. And so we can see that this is how the powers of Europe would seek to influence our republic in America. And we must remember that if we go farther back, not, not too much farther back from the 1860s, 
into the 1760s, we're back at the American Revolution. And we're working hard here to build the case and to make the most neglected corners of history, wherein the personalities behind the causes of tyranny and the political undercurrents, which lend themselves to despotism and abject absolutism of the church and state crushing over the, the fabric of humanity. And those undercurrents prefer the shadows to the light of modern scrutiny. And this old-fashioned history vivifies the raging conquest of the ancient battles whose causes and whose terminologies have fallen out of the knowledge of the common people. And so it, it happens now that the people of America barely remember the meaning and the miracle of the great American Revolution that took place under the guidance of men like George Washington. A revolution that was to grow into a great awakening and a great abolition, which the Protestant and the great Abraham Lincoln would proclaim emancipation for all the slaves. Long ago, have we forgotten our rage at the Hessian soldiers who were hired to keep the American colonists well under heel, along with the British redcoats. And we forget the history that these Hessian soldiers and redcoats would so often rape and murder the colonists and strip them of all their clothes and food. We're back at 1771. 1772 and 73, uh, you know, leading up to 1776, the colonists were so barbarously abused so that many hundreds of women and young girls were raped in New Jersey that an incredible uproar of all the people of the colonies became inflamed against the invaders. So this is how tremendously egregious the depravity and, and the wicked behavior of the Redcoats and Hessian soldiers had become toward the colonists that was going to really effectively make all the people popularly revolt and support George Washington. So we might want to keep that in mind as we move forward. What is tyranny? What is slavery? I tell you that the people that were being subjected to those Hessian soldiers were slaves, and there's no reparations to be paid or discussed in that. There's no racial dynamic to polarize or to demagogue, but we have to remember what causes people to ultimately band together and, and to fight for their liberty. So as we're moving forward, we're going to take a look at how the deep state, as it were, was exploded wide open in their almost unimaginable pedophile ring that is being dismantled as we speak, even though the mainstream media will not discuss it, and the Epstein case is still ongoing. How interesting that it appears that the Anthony Weiner laptop, with all of it, was found with child pornography, and it was the keystone to bringing this whole thing wide open. And it reminds me of how the Illuminati courier was struck by lightning and killed, and when the, the duty man found the men struck riding his horse and looked into his paper and discovered his parcels and his information that he was carrying as a courier that led back to a man's home and further documentation that they, they exposed the Illuminati. So we're going to discuss how it seems to me that it seems to be almost a providential correlation, how the deep state pornography ring was exposed wide open by Anthony Weiner's laptop. So as we're circling the different facts of history and trying to narrow in on what the influences were, what the power structure that would lead the different events surrounding the revolt in America. And as we just were discussing the Hessian soldiers, and remember the European powers during the Civil War worked to, including the Pope, worked to exacerbate the Civil War. And as we're working through these episodes, we're going to be taking a closer look at what's called the Counter-Reformation. And these Counter-Reformation strategies were employed as a means of executing asymmetrical warfare. And as we were discussing how it was the policy of papacy to, to bring in large numbers 
of immigrants who were suffering in their own lands around Europe into America. We also have to recognize that during the Civil War, the Jesuits were radical abolitionists in the North, agitating for war, and they preached radical secession in the South and urged war there. And so their strategy was to divide the Union of America. And as we said before, Napoleon was setting up his troops and he was intending to establish a monarchical rule in the collapse of America. And there's a lot more interesting information you can look into Charles Wilcox, C.T. Wilcox, does some really interesting stuff on that. So I have another interesting book that we can take a look at. It's called The Illuminati, The Secret Society That Hijacked the World by Jim Mars. And like, like I was saying before, it's not my intention to necessarily give too much credibility to each of these authors or necessarily to say that I'm a proponent of all their different ideas. But what I'm showing you is that these different authors are trying to get a handle on history. And as they each present their facts, we can go through the research, we can line up the historical data and come to what's really relevant regarding the controversy of America's founding. So in this book, he's trying to do a good job in really bringing out the facts. So we're on page 121, and there's a header, Weishaupt, and this is referring to Adam Weishaupt, who is one of the uh, ringleaders of the Illuminati there in Germany. And Weishaupt believed the Freemasons had largely lost the true meaning of their teachings and symbols. Adam Weishaupt was the perfect catalyst to promote these new and radical ideals. Born to Jewish parents, youngster was sent to live with his grandfather, Baron Johann Adam Rehr von Ickstadt, the professor of law at the University of Ingolstadt, whose extensive library contained many books banned from the public by the Jesuit authorities. Young Weishaupt also had access to the university's vast library, which contained forbidden works. It was during this time in the, at the university where he seemed to always be in trouble with the Jesuit authorities, upset by his controversial Protestantism that the young Weishaupt filled with the desire to change the world for the better was considered a radical. The fact that in 1777, Weishaupt joined a Masonic Lodge, which, unlike others, delved into both sciences and mysticism, and that also disturbed his Jesuit superiors. He and his followers would spend their nights in the apartments discussing the ancient mysteries of the Greek Elysius and Roman Mithraic cults, along with the works of Pythagoras, the Greek philosopher and mathematician whose work greatly influenced the study of geometry. By some reports, these gather gatherings included heavy drinking, music, and even consummation of cannabis. And this, in the foretaste of the 1960s hippies, the Illuminati once adopted the slogan, Ewig Blumkraft, the eternal flower power. And of course, this goes back to the Hashishans, the Hashishan sect, which we'll talk about in later episodes. Weishaupt soon became disenchanted with his Masonic membership in the Theodore of Good Counsel Lodge in Munich, which practiced a custom called the Rite of Strict Observance. This rite, an extension of the Scottish Rite, formed when the Templars fled with their intimate knowledge to Scotland was initiated in 1751 by German Freemason Baron Karl Gottlieb von Hund. It's H-U-N-D. He uh, taught that the rite descended from the knowledge of the Knights Templar and had been handed down from invisible masters, possibly meaning the ancient sky gods although the knowledge and understanding of each had long been lost. Why should believe the Freemasons had largely lost their true meaning of their teachings and their rituals and sought to infuse his knowledge and beliefs of the ancient mysteries into masonry, but met with some resistance. He also felt the Freemasons were not radical enough in their efforts to educate and elevate the public. 
His efforts began to bear fruit when Franz Xavier Carl Wolfgang von Zwack, and that's uh, Z-W-A-C-K, a scion of German nobility and a former student of Weishaupt, was recruited into the Illuminati. Zwack was a well-known official within the Bavarian government and a capable recruiter. He began to recruit ranking members of society into the order, as well as streamlining and even innovating some of the rituals and degrees. By 1779, the order had gained control over the Munich Masonic Lodge, and its doctrine was becoming more widespread, although still largely unknown to the public. So in 1779, America had revolted from Britain, and this was at the time that the, the lodges of Freemasonry were becoming illuminized or being controlled by the, the spread of the Illuminati agents. So it stands to reason that the early lodges in America were not yet affected by the Illuminati or corrupted in that way and were probably still independent lodges. So we're back to the uh, page 222 here. Events moved rapidly. In 1780, Wyship's wife died, releasing him to fully concentrate on his work, and he initiated the nobleman Freer Adolf Franz Friedrich Ludwig Nieg, Adolf Nieg, K-N-I-G-G-E, to become a very important figure in the Illuminati later on uh, towards the Civil War. And it goes on to say, a leading strict observance Freemason and a man well-connected to the court of Hess Cassell. So that's where we're really trying to get to. We're really trying to get to this court of Hess Cassell. And um, it's going to bring us into the, the how we got to the Hessian soldiers. So this man, Nieg, is connected with the strict observance Freemasonry. And he is connected to the court of Hess Cassell. And that's how they connected to the Illuminati. Nieg, a longtime student of theosophy, magic, alchemy, and the Rosicrucians, was well-placed in society and proved an enthusiastic recruiter for both the Illuminati and strict observance Freemasonry. It was Nieg who cemented the blending of of Illuminism and the tenets of Freemasonry in one. By the early 1780s, Illuminati membership had swelled to more than 2,000 men, many with professional or government positions, including some open-minded royalty. So that's where we're touching on the, the aristocracy in the background, the, the, the uh, orders of nobility and knighthoods. One of the royals associated with the Illuminati was William IV, royal administrator of the Hess-Cassell region and a prominent Freemason who, through his financial advisor, Meyer Amschel Rothschild, leased Hessian soldiers to England to fight the colonials in the American Revolution. Rothschild used embezzled money from William to place his five sons as Europe's most prominent central bankers. Also involved in the Illumi- with the Illuminati was Mayor Rothschild's bookkeeper, Seligman Geisenheimer. With the funding of the Rothschild banking empire behind him and a host of educated and progressive thinking Illuminati working for him, Weishaupt's dream of a world free of state and church controlled seemed to be coming true. The achievement came despite a turbulent personal life in which he impregnated his sister-in-law and then tried to chemically abort the fetus. In time, Weishaupt and Nieg fell out, constantly arguing over philosophy, management style, and the perennial lack of funds. Although Nieg well represented the absent Weishaupt at 1782 Council of Wilhelmsbad, termed the most significant event of the era as far as the official coalition between secret society factions. This conflict with Weishaupt reached a climax in 1784 when Nieg resigned from the order. He felt Weishaupt had been ungrateful towards his work, and he felt Weishaupt had been ungrateful toward this work, took on dictatorial control in his leadership. The same year, fate turned against Weishaupt when his Illuminati, when Prince Elector of Bavaria, Karl Theodor, 
Theodore, persuaded by accusations against the Illuminati by the Jesuits and others, issued an edict banning such secret societies. The existence of the Bavarian Illuminati was drawing to an end. So there we have it, and this is just one author's perspective. Some authors go back into the lineage of Adam Weishaupt and dispute some of these different various facts, but this is pretty much how the story goes. And as it turns out, there were many Jesuits acting within the Illuminati. And so on one hand, the Illuminati power was growing and gathering strength amongst the aristocracy and the nobility and the wealthy educated classes in the Freemasons of Europe. But on the other hand, the Protestant Republic of liberty and freedom and justice for all was growing and taking root in North America. So we have to take a closer look here. We'll look at some other writings as well. And we'll have to realize that it was the estate of Hesse Cassell that rounded up these Hessian soldiers, which were really Hessian mercenaries paid for by the Rothschild banking empire that was growing at that time and was interested in defending the holdings of Britain in the new in the colonies. And it was their funding these Hessian soldiers that brought them into the colonies and had caused such a depravity of rape and murder and had raised such a terrible butchery among the people that they took on the revolt in America with the life and death urgency. So we're back here with the Looking Glass Forum. And I just want to get back on topic here. And we have a couple interesting articles and things we need to get to uh, take a look at here as we're moving forward and progressing through our material. And I really want to take a look at something, an interesting uh, an interesting podcast here where a fellow that we sometimes like to listen to is kind of controversial in the, uh, in the work of Eric John Phelps. And we wanted to just take a look at one of his recent episodes where he, he does a little discussion. And we want to point out that we don't agree with all the different writers, authors, speakers, and historians that we are going to present on this show. But what we're showing is that people with very different attitudes, very different backgrounds, education, very different history will have to come to terms with the reality of the facts when they're, when they're uh, working, when they're doing their, their documentaries, when they're doing their, their books, they're doing their podcasts, we're all looking at the same set of, of facts in the historical record, and we have to come to terms with those facts. And we don't have the luxury of you know creating a mob and marching through the countryside and tearing down all the statues we don't like and, and re- rewriting history the way we see fit. And so the facts of history are what we're dealing with. And like I said, we, we have to look at very controversial authors. We don't necessarily agree with communism or uh, Hegelian conflict dialectics or some of the different ideas that our authors present. But what we're doing is we're looking at the way that they are dealing with the facts of history and how these immovable facts have to be understood. So as we're moving through the information, we're going to, we're spanning the course of time throughout American history. As we're moving forward, the revolution's really going to be beginning in the late 1700s and 1770s. And as we're going through time, we're, we're approaching the advent of the Civil War, and then later on in the 1920s and 1930s, we would face World War II. So as we're going through all this data, we're going to start to see that the same families, the same organizations, the same secret societies, the same skull and bones agitators who are growing in power throughout our federal government and have more and more influence within the military industrial complex, we're seeing that there is an, or a class of plutocrats an aristocracy within American society that's gaining wealth and power and influence. And so that's what we're going to begin to take a look at. And so here, Eric John Phelps is discussing World War II and all the bad actors and the provocateurs in the background. It's like Hitler's SS. The German people were terrified of it. The order of the death's head. 
And so there were three major dictators in the 20th century in Europe that the Jesuits were using for the imposition of fascism to kill targeted populations of Europe and Russia. First fascist to come to power is Benito Mussolini. And if you look at Donald Trump's portrait, he doesn't look like Hitler. He looks like Mussolini. Remember, there were three great orators of the 20th century. First was Benito Mussolini, second was Adolf Hitler, and third was Fidel Castro. All Roman Catholics, all controlled by Jesuits. Mussolini was advised by a Jesuit. He was the secretary of the Society of Jesus. His name was Pietro Tacciventuri. In his 1922 march, when he finally takes over and takes over everything, he now is the absolute dictator over Italy. And one of the things he'll do is he will help Hitler come to power. He will back that. And do you know who was a close friend of Mussolini? They used to exchange letters together. Winston Churchill, that traitor to the British people giving away Eastern Europe to Brother Jesuit Joseph Stalin. And Churchill's advisor and Jesuit overseer was Anthony Eden, that Roman Catholic savage. Just like FDR's advisor was that Jesuit coadjutor Harry Hopkins, that FDR let him live in the White House without a title. It's like Stalin's advisor was Alexander Poskrevyshev. Poskrevyshev was a Jesuit-controlled advisor. He put together all the death lists. Stalin signed him. Poskrevyshev lived in the Kremlin without a title. And Poskrevyshev was the dear friend of Molotov. So you got all these Jesuits. Molotov, Poskrevyshev, Anthony Eden, Harry Hopkins, Avery Dulles, that wicked sinner. Or uh, Averill Harriman. Goes to Yalta. He's skull and bones. Bosom friend of Joseph Stalin. All these guys, all of them knights, bonesmen. April, uh, April Harriman was a bonesman. You read the book, America's Secret Establishment by Anthony Sutton, all about skull and bones. He names April Harriman there too. Skull and Bones helped bring Mao Zedong to power. They're all working together. But the Jesuits decide to bring fascism to power when they have Protestants to kill or any real liberals because the Jesuit oath condemns heretics and liberals. And that includes Roman Catholic liberals, liberal being a good term, meaning freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, freedom of the press. Jesuits don't want that. We don't have freedom of press in America. So, they bring Franco to power in 1936, and he begins a civil war. But prior to that, the Republicans come to power in Spain. They are called communists by the American press that's controlled by the Archbishop out of New York. And William Randolph Hertz, that night of Malta, so they call them communists. And they are going to be labeled as such because Joseph Stalin will, will uh, send some money to them and send some military help to the, 
to the uh, Republicans of Spain, but Stalin didn't want to really help him. Stalin was working with Hitler. He was working with Mussolini. They're all working together with FDR and Churchill. The last thing those dictators wanted was a free Protestant freedom of conscience Spain, which has suffered terribly under the hands of the papacy and the Jesuits, maybe more than any other nation in Europe, keeping those dear Spanish people down. So, what did Franco do when he came to power? And I just watched a special on Franco on the TV last night. Showed the horrible things that he did, the torturing. One of his chief torturers was named Billy the Kid. It's a very good documentary on Netflix. I recommend you see it. All these mass graves they had. Franco killed approximately two million Spaniards. And he said, I am prepared to kill every Spaniard in Spain to bring it back, to bring Spain back to the Roman papacy. The Jesuits were expelled in 1932. They were formally kicked out. Good for the Spanish. And they were having a great Protestant revival there in the reading of the Bible with those dear Spanish people. So the Jesuits said, we got enough of this. So we're going to go after these Republicans. We're going to call them communists. We're going to invoke the help of America against, against Franco. And by the way, there was a great black American soldier. He was named Carter. His name was Carter. He later would get the posthumously the Medal of Honor. But Carter was a great American soldier. He, he fought against Franco with the Republicans in the Spanish Civil War. And when I found that out, I said, no wonder he was blackballed. No wonder he, could, he, he didn't get a retirement. No wonder he had to go to work as an older man in a factory. He transgressed against the Jesuit order. That's what Carter did. And there's a there's a portion of him on America, American soldiers getting the Medal of Honor, and there's a segment on Carter. you got to watch it. So that was an alternate view of the historical facts, of which you might not have heard before. But again, we're overlaying the historical review. We can now see that the different factions acting upon history, we can discern their motives and their purpose of intent. The occult secrets of history are more than ever before merely the obfuscation of the tactics and the intellectual components driving the purpose of our collective enemies. When we are no longer educated enough as a people to comprehend the dangers and the threats to our collective national enterprise, that we have lost our existential awareness and we invite an invasion of foreign military to seize our lands. America was forged as a political sanctuary from the ideological tyranny of Europe, a sovereign free world that would shine like a bright light in the darkness of the religio-cultic statism of the dark ages. The knowledge of God's word printed from the politically free printing presses of Geneva urged forward the Protestant Reformation and the freedom of all Europeans to their own conscience all across Europe against the religious persecution of Rome, whose victims were burned alive in every city of Europe. For six centuries, this butchery would never allow the American colonists to forget the cost of freedom. Just as the American colonists revolted against King George III with his Hessian mercenaries and their orders of knights, and their monstrously wealthy bankers and financiers, they have all been arrayed in a phalanx aimed at destroying our Protestant Republic of free men. And just as the author and the speaker that we just listened to, Phelps points out, despite his status as a terribly controversial figure, he pointed out that Rothschild's banking family is merely a clerk, a bank clerk for all the gigatrillionaire families like the Contis and the Sforzas and the Aldo Brandini, the Medici level families throughout Europe and especially in Italy. 
So I want to take a look at another final reading for this episode. We're really trying to take a look at who were the actors during the revolution, the American Revolution. What was motivating the colonists to, to so desperately fight for their freedom from what was a system of tyranny and religious persecution that was consuming Europe. So at that time, we have this right up here. It's You should take a look at it. It's Spence Corps. So if you go to spencore.info, you can look at and read this. It has a lot of interesting pictures. It has a picture of uh, William Huntington Russell, who was the um, the guy who founded the Order of Skull and Bones who we were looking at earlier. It has all the uh, crucial actors at the time. So it starts out here in this write, write up about how the Rothschild family fortune was made. And it starts out like this. 1763, Mayor Amschild Bearer. And his, uh, he, he was born in 1743 and died in 1812. Left his job at the Wolf Jacob Oppenheimer Bank to start his own firm. Oppenheimer had a practice of lending money to royalty. He was engaged in the international bullion trade. Goes on to talk about his family, his marriage. On the 29th of August, 1770, Bauer married. Her family was also rich. A schnapper father was a court agent, which is what Bauer would become. Uh, the schnapper, her father gave Bauer... A very generous dowry. Carl Landgrave of Hesse was deeply into the occult and was the main organizer of the Congress of Wilhelmsbad, which is famously the the Congress that would organize all orders of Freemasonry into a grant under under the authority of a Grand Lodge. So the Congress of Wilhelmsbad was held at the summer home of Carl's brother William the Ninth, Elector of Hesse. The House of Hesse built up great wealth by hiring out mercenaries for armies. Bauer was their banker. Prince William of Hanu was closely related to the various royal families of Europe. 1775, using his connections, Mayer teamed up with Prince William, who was the ruler of Germans' hesse Cassel district. William had a reputation as a cold-blooded loan shark who trained and rented out his Hessian soldiers as mercenary troops. It was a, it was a palatable blood-for-money business that made... Prince William, one of Europe's most successful men, working as Prince William's agent, Mayor Bauer, collected fees for each dead Hessian soldier killed on the battlefield. He hired his sons to help collect the blood money from renter nations, since wars were good for the rent, a troop business. Prince William used his royal connections in Denmark and England to provoke these wars. King George III of England rented Hessian soldiers from Prince William and Mayor Bauer to fight the American colonists. By 1776, British and Hessian troops arrived on American shores ready to fight the American colonists. Mayor Rothschild made his money for every Hessian soldier killed on the battlefield. 1776, Adam Wyshift and many other agents began the Order of Illuminati. This was three years after the Vatican suppressed the Jesuit society with the financing of Bauer. So you can see here that the, the suppression of the Jesuit society is going to be the impetus that brings about the, the rise of the Illuminati power later, since they're operating in a different name, obviously. In 1779, Bauer was granted the job of court agent to Prince William. A court agent is a title that gave him significant legitimacy in the eyes of the public. With a new title, Bauer experienced a surge in new money-making opportunities. Prince William also put Bauer in charge of managing his properties and doing his tax gathering. Mayor Amschel Bauer, Bauer who changed his name to Rothschild, we will later see means Red Shield in German, that's what the, the word Rothschild means, and aligned himself with Adam Wyshut. So there's an aligning happening outside where Bauer is following the money and he's following the power structure as it's becoming the Illuminati. And, and as, as it appears that 
the Jesuits are disappearing. Weishaupt is credited with being the founder of the Bavarian Illuminati, an organization whose aim was, and still is, world domination. At its height, the Illuminati had around 2,000 members, the House of Bauer Rothschild, on its way to becoming the most powerful banking families in the world. Mayor Amschel Bauer, who, after changing his name to Rothschild, would put a red shield over his shop. It is rumored that the name Rothschild came from Red Shield. Rothschild acted as banker to members of the Illuminati. Archbishop Prince Carl Theodore Dahlberg obtained the highest degree within the Illuminati in 1784 and was a traitor against France. Back in Europe, Napoleon with his French army became the masters of Europe. When Napoleon stormed into Frankfurt, Germany, William feared for his life and his vast fortune. He left $3 million in the hands of Mayor Rothschild to pay to the Hessian soldiers. Then William escaped to Denmark to stay with his royal relatives, all of whom were descendants. Mayor Rothschild received a stock market tip from his World Revolutionary Network, instead of, which, you know, of course, we know was the Illuminati underground, which who were the Jesuits who were hiding in plain sight. Instead of paying the Hessian soldiers with $3 million, Mayor Rothschild bet the money on his insider stock market tip. With this new fortune, Rothschild set up five family banks to be run by his sons in London, Paris, Naples, Vienna, and Frankfurt. So these central bank systems in all these different nations will be set up at this time. And as we, of course, as we know, Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo, and that's how he made all of his money. In 1782, Congress of Wilhelm's Bad, members of Wyship's Illuminati Order, met members of Freemasonry at the Castle of Hesse under Rothschild's care. From that time on, 1785... Frederick II mysteriously died as his son, William I, Elector of Hesse. When the French Revolution broke out in 1789, Mayor Rothschild found that the business of war was very profitable. He made fortune by selling arms to the Austrian army. With an increased wealth, he used the money to import large volumes of English textiles. He expanded his operations in more nations around the world during the early days of the Industrial Revolution. The Battle of Waterloo. Wellington's army was funded by Nathan Rothschild. The significance of the Battle of Waterloo should not be understated. Napoleon's return, partly funded by the French Rothschilds, provoked great instability throughout Europe, which was still reeling from the previous Napoleonic Wars. Had the British failed to subdue Napoleon's advance and win a decisive victory against him, then its position as the most powerful empire on earth would have been seriously challenged, and thus confidence in its security as a stable financial investment would also have been severely damaged. Napoleon was inducted into Freemasonry at Army Philadelphia Lodge in 1798. He was part of the Inner Masonic Club. However, due to his imperialistic values, he could not keep himself in check. Napoleon crowned himself as King of France in 1804. Napoleon enjoyed, Napoleon enjoyed immense success as Emperor of France, yet his policies contain a fatal flaw. His Bank de France, which provided interest-free loans to the people of France, was a direct threat to the Rothschild banking empire. The Rothschilds decided that they could beat Napoleon's army, not through direct conquest, but by financial dominance. Napoleon needed so much money to finance his war that he agreed to sell all the French territory in America. And this was in 1804, the Louisiana Purchase. So that was an interesting write-up, and it goes back to the, the layers of banking and finance families that are at the disposal of the, the aristocracy and the royalty surrounding the Roman Catholic Church and, and the kings and the princes of Europe. Contrasting that whole discussion with the American Revolution and why it was different from the French Revolution and from other revolutions, including the Russian Revolution that would happen later at the turn of the century. 
So let's listen to an interesting discussion about George Washington that really like brings the point home. He wasn't an intellectual. He wasn't a uh, great speaker or a brilliant writer. He wasn't, as a military leader, a, a brilliant tactician or, or a strategist. But he had the capacity to make people want to follow him. And, and if there was a more courageous human being who ever lived, I don't know who it was. And it was the courage of his convictions. And he would not quit. Uh, every, every sign was, it was over, you've lost, give up, it's not worth it. But no, he, he wouldn't stop. And he was the same kind of a unifying force when he became president, maybe more so. You know, it, it didn't just come to us out of the sky. It just, these advantages we have, this system of life and government and our freedoms didn't just happen. Somebody had to work hard and suffer, and many of them, of course, died to make it happen. And the doubters were all around. It wasn't as if everybody was, oh, this is a wonderful thing, let's, let's go out and fight for it. A fraction of the country was for it. A fraction of the country was willing to serve in the army. I think maybe if there's a message in Washington's life, it's that, it's that willingness to serve and not just talk about what you're going to do, but to act. It takes both. And uh, absolute selfless service to the country in, as they said, war and peace. For no pay. Nothing in it for him. And then when he gets the ultimate power, as almost nobody could imagine, he gave it up. Willingly. Of his own choice. And uh, this was after the war was over and he'd won. He was the conquering general. He was the hero. Yeah, he could have been anything he wanted. Czar, king, potentate, whatever. He could have made the presidency into a totally different kind of office. But he relinquished power. He said, no, I'm going back to Mount Vernon. And when George III heard that he might, he, George Washington, might do that, he said, if he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. And uh, because nobody had done that before. This was the, the ultimate uh, uh, ideal of Cincinnatus, you know, that uh, you, the conquering general, the conquering hero returns to the plow. Well, when the British arrived in uh, the lower bay uh, of uh, New York, New York Harbor, and when they came up into the bay with a force of ships, it was the largest single armada ever seen in the 18th century. Largest armada ever sent forth to suppress a, another people in another part of the world in, in all of history up until then. There had never been anything like it, and, it, and they landed 32,000 troops on Staten Island, which was more than the entire population of the largest city in the colonies, which was Philadelphia. And when they came ashore at Long Island, they defeated our army. The largest battle of the, of the Revolutionary War was fought on Long Island, and it was a disaster. And the retreat that followed uh, was uh, brilliant. Uh, they escaped at night from uh, Long Island, from Brooklyn Heights, which was sort of the Dunkirk of the Revolution, um, a masterful demonstration of leadership on Washington's part because 
an orderly retreat, even for an experienced army, is the most difficult maneuver to make. And to make it with an inexperienced army at night across the East River, which isn't a river at all but a tidal estuary, uh, was almost uh, beyond imagining. And, and again, the British woke up the next day, as they had in Boston, to discover the guns on Dorchester Heights, to discover that this army they were chasing had vanished. Now, that's, it was brilliant and it was masterful, but you don't win wars by retreating, and that's all they did for the rest of that year was, uh, was retreat. And the army kept getting smaller and smaller. By the time uh, they were down in New Jersey, getting close to the Delaware River, uh, the, the uh, size of Washington's army was only about 5,000, and probably only 3,000 of those men were fit for duty. And here, here comes the British uh, juggernaut uh, with uh, you know, 25, 30,000 men if they needed it. And uh, that was the time that, as uh, Thomas Paine said, that tried men's souls. And uh, Washington managed to get across the river, and then he took stock, and people were saying, look, it's over, and we've lost. But he refused to see it that way, and so what he did, what is often what one has to do when all hope's gone, he attacked. And he, that's when he crossed the Delaware Christmas night and struck at Trenton and won, and then a few days later turned around and struck at Princeton and won. Now those weren't big battles, they were engagements, but the fact that he'd won, the fact that they had defeated this foe, was of immense importance to morale all through the country. And that really was not just a turning point in the revolution or in our history, it was a turning point in world history. Because it wasn't going to be the same again after that. And that was force of, force of character, force of something inside that man and those people around him, Nathaniel Green and Henry Knox, John Glover and others like that, and the men in the ranks, um, who were few and they had no clo adequate clothing and that some of them had no shoes and uh, men died. Men froze to death that night on the march to Trenton, just dropped dead from, from exposure in the army, in the, on the march. And, uh, and he held it together. It's, it's amazing. And here was a man who too few people understand, uh, loved interior decoration, loved uh, architecture, loved landscape design, was an avid uh, uh, agriculturalist, as they called it then, who, uh, who was fastidious about his clothing, his appearance. He had all kinds of human traits that are extremely interesting and revealing. Um, everybody says he was a fox hunter. Well, what kind of a fox hunter was he? He was the kind of fox hunter that was out there at the front, as close to the hounds as you could get. Very dangerous place to be, and who would not give up. He would fox hunt for seven, eight hours until they'd got the fox. He just was that kind of a person, tenacious. Well, you know, if you're going to be in a fight, that's a good kind of leader to have. And, of course, we have always, as I suppose every nation and people have in all time, we admire that kind of leadership and courage, and particularly if it's in a cause that's just and a cause that's far beyond his own self-aggrandizement or enrichment of any kind. Well, he was the leader.
he was the commander in chief. He was the uh, the the winning general. In simplest terms, he won. Took a lot of good luck, help of the French, and it took a long time—the longest war in our history, except for Vietnam. And then, once we had won, he became the stabilizing factor in the divisiveness that immediately emerged between the regions, particularly north and south. And uh, and he held the country together for eight years as president. And they, this isn't something that later day scholars have uh, have imposed on the on the material from the past. This is in what they were saying then. He is what's holding us together. He was the, the force of unity. And at that stage we needed that desperately because there were all kinds of forces outside and inside that were trying to break it up. Europe would have loved to have seen us break up. The faster the better. One of the lessons of any great creative effort is that it takes all kinds of people to make it happen. And it took all kinds of people to make the miracle of the creation of the United States of America happen. And they weren't the same. They brought different qualities, different abilities, different talent. What Washington brought was the, was the gift of leadership, the gift of courage, leadership, character, conviction, willpower. We will make it happen. And there's no limit to what can be accomplished with goodwill and hard work. And that's a tonic, you know, that's a powerful message, particularly for a people that are struggling just to, to, make, a, to, to make a start. He wasn't always successful. There's an idea that we have, I suppose that it comes from people who are born athletes or born musical uh, uh, virtuosos or whatever, that he had to work hard to become George Washington. It wasn't easy. He suffered defeat. He made mistakes. He made blunders. Um, he was frustrated in his ambitions uh, again and again as a young man. He had a lot to learn. Uh, he had to. Uh, he he had to uh, get go to the wilderness, which he did. I mean, that's something people don't understand. If you, you talk about someone getting into outward bound. Let's say this was the most outward bound young man in uh, Virginia uh, in his day when it was real wilderness and real uh, adversity uh, living uh, uh, with on the land or in the wilderness. And his um, his resilience, physical, more mental, uh, spiritual, this guy could really take it. And, uh, and yes, he does sometimes resort to self-pity in his letters, and yes, he can at times not tell the entire truth, and yes, he uh, uh, can let people down, and he's a human being. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Look, if they were gods, they wouldn't deserve much credit, would they? Because gods can do whatever they want. And these are human beings who did what they did. That's what makes it a story, and that's what makes it uh, an encouraging story, an inspirational story, if I may use that word. I don't believe much in ranking presidents. I, 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 are you ranking them as a human being? Are you ranking them as a politician? Are you ranking them in, 
in view of what they accomplished. There's so many criteria, so many measurements. But Washington was our greatest president. He was the one at the start. He held it together and he set the example. He, he was the defining model of what the president should be and do. We could not have been more fortunate. I mean, you talk about good luck. Good heavens. What he could have been, what he could have done that would have been so detrimental, so um, disruptive. And uh, now Lincoln's great gift was a gift of soul, a depth of soul. And, and once again, he held the country together and fought a war uh, successfully to free people from bondage. And, uh, but uh, Washington is there at the beginning. And the, and the Revolutionary War is the most important war in our history because that's how we came to be. Well, that's, of course, a very subjective question. It's personal. I think what, he's, what he reminds us is that public service, service to the country, the, willing to, the willingness to serve is what makes it work. And nobody served longer at greater personal sacrifice uh, with less monetary material reward than George Washington. Selfless devotion to the cause of the country. And I think that's a lesson that can't be stressed too often or too much. He held the country together, held the cause together, and did so um, in a way that sets an example for behavior as a citizen that we can all learn from, and that his picture really should be, along with Abraham Lincoln, back in every schoolroom, as it used to be. and. Uh, this isn't ancestor worship, or this isn't uh, uh, old-fashioned um, history. This is the, this is reality. This is the truth. And uh, to be indifferent to people like Washington, to be uninterested in people like Washington, is really a form, in part, of ingratitude. We ought to be down on our knees every day, thanking God that we are part of this country. And we ought to know about the people who made it possible and thank them, in effect, by showing interest in them. And, uh, and their world, their time, I can't overemphasize that. The 18th century is one of the most interesting periods in all of human history. And it's full of tumult and change, just as ours is. And one other, one other thing, I think any time we get down and we think, oh, we're living in such a dangerous, uh, difficult, uncertain time, oh, woe is us, uh, excuse me, it's, we've been through far worse than we're going through now, uh, with far greater adversity, far more imminent danger, imminent danger. Uh, we, have, um, we have suffered more we have known 
darker clouds on the horizon by far than we do now. And we've come through it. And we will again. And let's draw from that example. Draw strength from, strength from history. History is a source of strength and should be. And Washington, of course, individually as a human being, as a, as a figure in history, is one of the protagonists of our story, is a, is a, is a particularly uh, um, striking example of history as a source of strength. Everything seemed to the advantage of the conquering army. All was going as wished, except for one vexing problem that had been growing steadily worse for several weeks. Marauding and pillaging by redcoats and hessians had gotten out of hand. Scandalous behavior for British troops, wrote Major Stephen Kemble, the loyalist serving with the British army, and the hessians outrageously licentious and cruel to such a degree as to threaten with death all such as dare obstruct them in their depredations. Campbell had recorded this in his diary in early November, before the capture of Fort Washington. I shudder for New Jersey, he had written. The plenty of New Jersey, the garden of America, its broad, fertile, well-tended farms, abundant supplies of livestock, grain, hay, food put up for winter, barrels of wine and beer for the taking, were all too much to resist. On the first night his Hessian troops set foot in New Jersey, Captain Ewald wrote, all the plantations in the vicinity were plundered, and whatever the soldiers found in the houses was declared booty. Ewald was appalled by what he saw. On this march through New Jersey we looked upon a deplorable sight. The region is well cultivated with very attractive plantations, but all their occupants had fled, and all the houses had been or were being plundered and destroyed. The British blamed the Hessians. The Hessians are more infamous and cruel than any, wrote Ambrose Searle after hearing reports of British plundering. The Hessians blamed the British. The Americans blamed both the British and the Hessians, as well as the New Jersey loyalists, and the British and Hessian commanders seemed no more able to put a stop to such excesses than Washington had been. The stories, amplified as many may have been, were a searing part of a war that seemed only to grow more brutal and destructive. Accounts of houses sacked, of families robbed of all they had, became commonplace. American reports of atrocities were often propaganda, but many were also quite accurate. The Pennsylvania Journal, the Pennsylvania Evening Post, and the Freeman's Journal carried reports of the sick and elderly being abused, of rape and murder. No one was safe, according to the British officer Charles Stedman. The friend and the foe from the hand of rapine shared alike. The New Jersey loyalists were the most villainous of all, Nathaniel Green reported to his wife Katie. They lead the relentless foreigners to the houses of their neighbors and strip poor women and children of everything they have to eat or wear. And after plundering them in this sort, the brutes often ravish the mothers and daughters and compel the fathers and sons to behold their brutality. The enemy's ravages in New Jersey exceed all description, Greenwood report, 
to Governor Nicholas Cook of Rhode Island. Many hundred women ravished. At Newark, according to the report of a congressional committee, three women, one of whom was in her 70s, another pregnant, were most horribly ravished. Fear and outrage spread across New Jersey and beyond. Their footsteps are marked with destruction wherever they go, Green said of the enemy. What remained of Washington's army, the Shadow Army, as Green called it, was pitiful to behold. But give me leave to tell you, sir, Green would write to John Adams, that our difficulties were inconceivable to those who were not eyewitnesses to them. So that podcast can be found, if you want to continue looking at that, on the American Conservative University podcast. It's called Depravity of the Redcoats and the Hessians. George Washington written out of history. And I want to do another little reading here. It's by a book called The Footprints of the Jesuits by Richard Wigginton Thompson. And I believe he was an admiral in the Navy. Go back and take a look at his original record. But he had a really interesting historical book that he wrote. We're just going to start here on page 260. The reintroduction of the Jesuits into Spain teaches a lesson which should not be forgotten. The king, Ferdinand VII, proved himself to be one of the most faithful of their royal pupils. After he had succeeded in becoming freed from the grasp of Napoleon and returned to his kingdom, he found an existing constitution by which the Spanish people, in his absence, had placed wholesome limitations upon the royal power. With a view to regain possession of authority, he made a solemn pledge that he would obey the constitution and see that it was enforced. Having Having succeeded, he proved by his subsequent conduct that he was thoroughly conversant with and wholly approved the Jesuit doctrine that a monarch is not bound by any promise made to his subjects or by any oath to obey it because his authority is divine and the people possess no rights which he does not of his own accord concede to them. Consequently, when safely in possession of the throne with Jesuit emissaries crowding about his court to dictate his policy and pardon his perjury, he traitorously proceeded to abolish the Cortes, the legit legislative body of the nation, and grasped the scepter of absolute government in his own hands. He restored the infamous Inquisition, and the cruelty of his despotism was exhibited in the number of victims who suffered death during his reign of terror. How such a monarch should have enjoyed the favor and protection of Pius VII, the head of the church, almost passes intelligent comprehension. How he had the approval of the Jesuits is well understood. His enormities became so great, at last, that the Roman Catholic people of Spain, weary of his persecutions and realizing that the nation could not live unless they were arrested, resorted to a revolution to avenge wrongs that they could endure no longer and proclaimed a constitutional form of government whereby they guaranteed such popular rights as they deemed essential to their own welfare. But the Jesuits were present to counsel the perjured king and accepting their casuistical teachings as his guide he assented to this new constitution and by the repetition of his solemn promise to observe it turned away the popular vengeance and thus he gained time to renew renew his royal strength and when he subsequently found the nation seemingly slumbering in a sense of security again stamped his feet upon the constitution reassumed his arbitrary authority as king by divine right independently of all the people he forfeited his honor by repeating his perjury and plunged plunged spain into the deepest misery 
This purge or tyrant was cursed by the Roman Catholic people of Spain, and his enormities drove the Roman Catholic population of Spanish America to assert their independence. And when he had the royal power in his hands, he brought the Inquisition and the Jesuits back to Spain. And when the people were unable to enforce the Constitution, they drove the Jesuits out of the country. He knew his friends and the people knew their enemies. But with all the infamies of his conduct resting upon him, he was favored and applauded by Pius VII and venerated by the Jesuits. The contemporaneous events are all full of instruction. To accomplish the objects announced at Vienna, the Holy Alliance, quote-unquote, met again in Congress of Verona, at Verona, where the sovereigns pledged themselves in the most solemn form that they would continue to prevent the establishment of popular governments or democratic self-government and would unite all their energies in preserving monarchical institutions where they existed and in reestablishing them where they had been set aside by the people. The, ad the adoption of a constitution by Spain was considered as in conflict with this decision at Verona, and preparations were at once made to defeat it. Louis XVIII of France was one of the allied sovereigns who had undertaken to preserve monarchism and defeat all popular governments at every hazard, marched an army into Spain for the sole purpose of subduing the people and setting the constitution aside so that the state of things that had so long existed under Ferdinand VII should continue. It was this unnatural and unjust war that carried back the institution of the Inquisition and the Jesuits back into Spain. Nothing could have been more grateful to the Jesuits because they had thought that they they thought they could see in it the triumph of monarchy, monarchism, monarchy, monarchism over the people. They followed this army of invasion with as much delight as famishing people go to a feast. That they exulted when it succeeded in overwhelming and overthrowing the constitution, and when they saw the feet of the perfidious Ferdinand the Seventh again upon the necks of the Spanish people, no reader of history will doubt that they celebrated. They nestled themselves in the country, says. Greisinger, more firmly than ever, seemingly encouraged by the hope that the cause of the popular of popular rights was lost forever among the Roman Catholic population of Spain. But this unrighteous triumph was short-lived. Another crisis in the affairs of Spain occurred upon the death of Ferdinand VII, when after a bloody civil war of six or seven years, the ill-fated Isabella was placed upon the throne, and another liberal constitution was proclaimed. Not entirely Republican, it is true, but sufficiently representative in form to arrest the usurpation of absolutism and assure the ultimate triumph of popular liberties. Once more, the Roman Catholic people of Spain signal, signalized their victory over absolutism by driving the Jesuits out of the country and avowing their determination that they would no longer be endangered by their presence or annoyed by their intrigues. And thus the Jesuits were compelled to find congenial fields of operations elsewhere in Europe among those who regarded a constitutional and representative form of government as an offensive as an offense against the divine law, the people as fit only for servitude, and absolute monarchs as booted and spurred to ride them. Those f familiar with the hatred the Spanish people entertained for the Jesuits not only on account of their bad influence over Ferdinand VII, but because of the tendency of their doctrines to convert men into machines and blunt their moral sensibilities are not surprised at the detestation in which they were held in Germany. The Spanish people 
had long been known for obedience to to the Roman Church, but had reached a point of intelligence which enabled them to understand the difference between the Church and the Papacy, and therefore they would not permit even Pius VII to force the Jesuits upon them, a fact of great significance in forming a true estimate of their character. In Germany, however, where the Reformation began, the remembrance of their former vicious career had not died out. The opposition to them after their reestablishment was more intense than it had been before their suppression. So the suppression is going to begin in 1773, where the Pope's going to, Pope, Pope Clement the Fourteenth is going to extinguish the Jesuit order forever, for supposedly, but they will be back in play from 1773. They'll be back in play by 1814. So the opposition to them after the reestablishment would be at the after 1814. For as the German people increased in, in enlightenment they were better able to see and understand the irreconcilable hostility of the Jesuits to intellectual development and constitutional develop and constitutional government. Their own experience had taught them that reconciliation and concord between Protestants and Roman Catholics were not only possible but desirable. And they had learned from that same experience that as the Jesuits had participated in all the measures designed to strike down constitutional governments established by Roman Catholic populations, their delight would be increased if, with the same weapons, they could destroy similar governments established by Protestants. Therefore, the German people built around themselves a wall of defense in their intellectual enlightenment, which Jesuit craft and ingenuity was in vain endeavored to undermine. France, Austria, and Bavaria were all Roman Catholic countries. France had not forgotten the former fierce and protracted conflict which had given the Gallican Christians their cherished liberties. But, but, assuring to, but by assuring to the government they control, by assuring to the government the control of its temporary affairs without papal interference. The recollection of this revived also the re remembrance of the fact that the Jesuits had been expelled because of their efforts to, to destroy their freedoms and liberties. And hence, after their reestablishment in 1813, even Louis XVIII, with his evident partiality for them as the intriguing defenders of absolute monarchism, was unable, although backed by Pope Pius VII, to allow them again openly to re-enter France. Neither in Austria nor Bavaria had there ever had there been had there ever been any struggle as in France, but never but nevertheless the indignation felt towards the Jesuits by the people of both these countries was so undisguised that neither Francis I in the former nor Maximilian Maximilian Joseph in the latter dared to brave public opinion by allowing them free access to their kingdoms again. So in this we see. A need for secret societies and Freemasonic orders and Egyptian lodges and, and the series of esoteric occult lodges that would be used by the Jesuits since they could not operate in the open. So we go back to the book here on page 264. These impediments, however, only offered to the Jesuits the opportunity to practice the arts of dissimulation and deception with which they are made familiar by their method of educational training. They surreptitiously entered France under the name of Fathers of the True Faith, and Austria and Bavaria, they entered 
under the name of Redemptionists, Order of Redemptionists. And they did not venture in either of these countries to avow themselves openly as Jesuits because of the almost universal indignation felt towards them by these Roman Catholic populations. It was too dangerous. By gaining admission among them by these false pretenses, they understood well by skillful training how to proceed in secret. Having penetrated the skirmish line of the enemy, they could survey the whole field of battle and plan accordingly. Every Jesuit who stealthily crept into France or Austria or Bavaria under these masks of hypocrisy stood towards the people of these countries as the Italian bandit does to his unsuspecting victim, ready to strike home his stiletto in the dark. It should excite no wonder, therefore, that with Pius VII, the allied sovereigns upon their thrones all maintained that they had the divine right to govern their subjects and enslave who they willed, and denying the any right of the people. These incendiary Jesuits were enabled at last to avow openly the name and existence of their order and to become scattered in all directions under the shelter of papal and imperial protection. Thus supported, they extended themselves over the adjacent states, even as far as the Rhenish Prussia, opening their colleges and schools everywhere and per permitted but little time to elapse before they assumed their familiar former dictatorship over governments and peoples. Since then, they have again revived their old imperial heirs among all the nations, especially when they have found shelter under liberal institutions and seem to be again inspired by the hope, if not the belief, that their ultimate triumph over Protestantism is assured and that the Roman Catholic populations will bow down before them <clears throat> as the only divinely appointed exponents of the true apostolic faith. Pius VII was encouraged by the success of the Jesuits and endeavored first to make them available in France to promote the interests of the papacy. Finding Louis XVIII submissive to his authority, he proposed to him a concordat with provisions intended to destroy the Gallican liberties and bring France into a condition struggled so hard by Boniface, struggled so struggled after to achieve so hard by Boniface the Eighth. That is of absolute submission to the papacy, in temporal as well as spiritual powers. Louis the Eighteenth was weak enough to agree to the Concordat manifestly under the Jesuit influence, but the Roman Catholic people of France were so easily entrapped. Were, the Roman Catholic people of France were not so easily entrapped as the Pope and the king had supposed, and the latter soon learned that even his royal authority was not sufficient to enforce this odious measure. He was compelled, therefore, by the force of public sentiment to abandon it. Although France still submitted to the presence of the Jesuits, the failure of the Concordat, however, was a sore defeat. But defeat only incensed the position of Pius VII. The hatred of the Jesuits in Germany was shared alike by Protestants and Roman Catholics. These two bodies of Christians agreed that they would unite in maintaining freedom of worship, and that is, that they would return to the old order of things which existed before peace and harmony had been disturbed by the Jesuits at their first appearing in Germany. And they signed a concordat to that effect, and sent it to Pius VII for his approval, intending that he would realize how easy it was for Christians to live together in harmony, notwithstanding differences of religion, religious belief prevailed among them. <clears throat> the importance of this moment cannot be overstated. 
if the Pope had overthrown his great influence in its favor, its beneficial, beneficial results would have been universally felt. But Pius VII, seemingly not to know that such a union among Christians was possible, positively and preemptorily refused his assent, and to this just and liberal arrangement declared that it would quote-unquote compromise his temporal and spiritual power that all humans were subjected to. All classes of German Christians, whosoever they otherwise deferred, rebuked this illiberality and adhered to their conciliatory course towards each other. In other words, they refused to be provoked into a religious war between them. Pius VII, realizing the necessity of fulfilling his obligation to the Allied sovereigns and of keeping the Jesuits in the active service of the papal and, and imperial cause, became intensely excited at this German persistence and expressed his indignation in strong language. His course is thus explained by Cormenin. He rallied around him the kings of the Holy Alliance, declaring a terrible war against all liberal ideas, fulminating excommunications against the Democrats of France, the Illuminati of Germany, the Radicals of England, and the Carbonari of Italy, which includes everything that that, intent, that tended at that period towards liberalism and popular government. Manifestly, however, his anger was especially aroused at the thought of religious toleration, which looked at from the papal standpoint meant the loss of monarchical power, and consequently, it was heresy. With this combination, with this tremendous combination confronting them, compounded as it was of the papacy, the allied sovereigns, and the Jesuits, what, what other remedy but revolution was within the reach of the people? How else could they prevent the continued union of church and state, the complete triumph of monarchism, and the crushing defeat of constitutional and popular government across the world. So what we're going to see now as we're moving forward, that we're going to be going to the turn of the century, and as we go into the late 1800s, the Jesuits are going to be reestablished in 1813. By 1913, we would have the Federal Reserve, and we would be going through World War One and World War Two, And we will see how World War One and World War Two were another way for the monarchs and the Pope and the Jesuits to achieve their aims and they would ultimately destroy Germany utterly in World War II even though it was by an asymmetrical means and it didn't appear that it was a religious war or an inquisition but if you look at the past it's precisely what it was and what it precisely was is the same battle that we're seeing in our modern times and it was their, their Hessian mercenaries their European troops and their orders of knights and their monstrously wealthy bankers and financiers that have been arrayed in a phalanx aimed at destroying our independent constitutional Protestant Republic of free men here in America. All right, we'll see you guys next time.